back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a scientist and find out about the adventures they go on. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by zoologist, artist, and budding adventurer, Millie Formby. Millie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, James. Thank <laughs> you for having me on the podcast. No worries. <laughs> no, I don't even know where to start with asking questions, because... You already have such an interesting story, and you haven't even started the most exciting <laughs> part of it. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of things there in the background, hey. <laughs> <laughs> but we're here in uh, Airborne Windsports, mm-hmm. up near Lake Macquarie, where you're now based in preparation, or as part of, a, as part of the journey towards your main project goal, yeah. which is... Yes. <laughs> How can we sum this up? Well, um, a couple of years ago, I, I started learning to fly microlight aircraft because I want to eventually fly the migration part of our migratory shorebirds uh, from Australia to Siberia to raise awareness for shorebird conservation. All right, so, okay. <laughs> let's break that down. So, yeah, yeah. So, the microlight aircraft. What are we talking about? Yeah, so we're talking about a weight shift aircraft. It's um, pretty much a powered hang glider mm. so you have a hang glider wing with a three-wheel trike base that hangs underneath it and you control the aircraft by uh, flying the wing so you have a control bar in front of you as you're sitting down and um, yeah you have to push push the wing side to side or forward or pull it in towards you to uh, control pitch and roll so i guess for people listening picture a Three-wheeled motorcycle with a kite strapped to the top. Yes, I heard the best description one time. It was like Hagrid's flying motorbike with the Oh, wings. it is. Yeah, yeah, how's that? <laughs> All right, so you're a, you know how to fly these now. When did you get your interest in yep. microlights? Well, okay, so I'd never flown anything before. I had any interest in becoming a pilot until I came up with the idea for this project. So <laughs> um, I was chatting to my mate Carl one day and he was telling me about how he and his brother wanted to fly around Australia in microlights and raise money for the Royal Flying Doctor Service and mm-hmm. I was quite inspired and intrigued by that and I started asking about learning and he told me you know it wasn't that expensive and it mm-hmm. was relatively easy to get your pilot certificate for a microlight and then the next day I'm driving to Bunnings for work and the idea literally just popped into my head from nowhere. I stopped at the lights and I just had this thought, oh, I could fly a microlight to Siberia following the shorebirds. And the idea just stopped me in my tracks and I ended up <laughs> going really quiet for the rest of the day and not kind of talking to anybody because <laughs> I was like, oh, I could actually do this if I um, decided to. And um, after that... <laughs> It took me another year before I actually started doing something about it, but I, I noticed from that point I, I was kind of like, um, you know Homer Simpson in that episode where he goes to clown college and everything he looks at is the clown and <laughs> making a circus tent with his mashed potatoes and stuff. I was a bit like that. I, I started um, rearranging my life in ways that would allow me to um, financially be able to start learning to fly. And I didn't have a car at the time. I just moved from Melbourne to Perth. I was paying off debt. So... I started rearranging my life in ways that would allow me to do this. And then I went, well, I better actually see if I like flying because I've never flown one of these things before. 
<laughs> so I found a school in York, which is about two hours east of Perth. Mm -hmm. And I went out there and flew with Gordon Marshall and I absolutely loved it. Mm. I thought it was the best thing ever. And that was in November of 2015. And then in April 2016, I'd had enough money put together to actually begin lessons. Mm. So I started uh, flying with Gordon from that point on. And it took me about a year to get my pilot certificate because um, I was constrained financially for quite a while. Um, so yeah, now I've been flying for almost two years. I'm a fully qualified pilot and I've got my passenger and cross-country endorsements and I just left my job in Perth and moved to Newcastle, sold all my things, <laughs> packed up my life, everything fits in my car now, <laughs> drove across the Nullarbor to come here to Airborne and train with these guys because they're the world, lead world leaders in microlight aviation. Mm. So. Is it amazing that you can trace this life-changing <laughs> moment back to a drive to Bunnings? It's so funny. <laughs> yeah, it cracks me up. Yeah, I suppose I should tell people too. Like my background's in behavioural ecology and zoology, mm. and but now you're based in this microlight factory. We're yeah. sitting in the factory yeah. recording, so you can probably hear. Phones yeah. going in the background and tools yeah. drilling into oh, metal. Oh, that was to hear the drill just went off and just said drill. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> so, you, but before you were here, you were over in Western Australia and That's actually right. working mm -hmm. with the shorebirds. Yeah. And let's talk about the shorebirds themselves. You want to raise awareness for shorebird conservation. Yeah. So, um, well, I mean, most people might think of shorebirds as seagulls and pelicans. True. So, um, shorebirds, are, it's a term that describes about 56 different species of birds, mm -hmm. and 36 of those are migratory, and they fly from Australia to Siberia every year to breed in the Arctic Circle. And um, it's like they're having an endless summer, basically, so mm. they spend about October to March here in Australia and then um, yeah March through to uh, April through to September in the Arctic tundra and most or well, about half of those 36 mi migratory species are experiencing serious population declines mm -hmm. and many of them are, are now listed as endangered or critically endangered and very few people have actually even heard of these birds or un know that they do these kinds of migrations every year. And the main reason for their decline is habitat loss throughout mm -hmm. the flyway. So um, when I say flyway, that's a term that describes the bird migration highway, basically. Mm -hmm. So um, we belong to the East Asian Australasian flyway, and it's one of eight global migration flyways in the world and it's the largest and the most species rich it's uh, also got the uh, highest number of uh, migratory birds in in the world so that's the essentially the pathway between australia and the arctic yeah. tundra really that's right it's like a highway for birds a highway for birds yeah and it includes 22 countries mm -hmm. and uh over four and a half billion people mm. which is pretty incredible um and Australia is the southernmost destination point for those birds. So we have a, we're in a really unique position in that, that sense because we're able to uh, use 
population numbers from Australia, so surveys of those birds to work out what the conservation status is really or, you know, what the um, future projections for populations of those birds are, are looking like. So mm. the uh, banding and flagging that goes on here in Australia is crucial for, for monitoring uh, those species populations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and groups like um, the Victorian Way to Study Group and the Australasian Way to Study Group uh, in Australia, through which are connected to BirdLife Australia, um, they've been monitoring those birds for almost 40 years now. So we've got really detailed, um, strong data sets to uh, make those estimates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but something you said then sort of highlights the mm. difficulty with having <laughs> these birds because they're migrating across yeah. the 22 different politically recognised yes. countries. Yeah, and if you can interrupt that migration in any one of those countries, it's going to have a huge yeah. impact. Yeah. And you can't possibly coordinate conservation efforts across all those, surely? Well, oh, I'm always amazed at how, how successful treaties and um, uh, conservation work throughout our flyway is. Mm. There's several treaties that are working towards protecting uh, shorebirds, and China actually just... Um, uh, implemented a conservation plan for migratory shorebirds in, in around the Yellow Sea. They're no longer approving any future reclamation of tidal mudflats in that area, which wow. is the uh, number one stopover site for migratory shorebirds in our flyway. Mm -hmm. And that reclamation of that area for agriculture and industry is pretty much the primary cause of the major declines in these species mm -hmm. so that's a huge win yeah um, for the birds and for the flyway in general and that's come about pretty much through a lot of grassroots conservation efforts and people collaborating with one another across mm -hmm. you know political um, and cultural boundaries mm -hmm. so I'm I'm always well impressed by <laughs> <laughs> by that kind of stuff yeah so yeah. what so we've got this flyway going from essentially one side of the pond to the other, mm. <laughs> and you want to fly that yeah. same route. Yes. So it's what what distances are we talking here? Yeah. So um, we're talking about a twenty-five thousand kilometer round trip, and I know that's very ambitious. Um, so. When I first came up with this idea, it was totally green, and <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, this is a great idea, and bless my instructor, Gordon, when I first told him about it, I was so nervous about telling him about it, uh, I told him what I wanted to do, and he went, let's go inside and have a cup of tea, shall we? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he sat down, and he went through all of the logistics of doing something like that, and said, you have to be tapped in the head to do it, but you could probably do it. Like, <laughs> not going to be easy and take a long time so I had a five-year plan to do that but yeah. and I always had a plan to do a, a mini expedition to uh, work towards that larger goal mm -hmm. and that was originally going to be just flying Melbourne to Broome mm -hmm. but now um, I did work experience here at Airborne last year for two weeks and <laughs> Rory Duncan, one of the instructors here, I think his dad Russell must have told him to wait until the conditions were as shit as possible to take me up because it was like <laughs> baptism by turbulence, oh my God. But it was a brilliant reality check. It's what I needed. Mm. And um, 
after that I, I realized you know I need to know if I can actually physically fly um, that distance you know mm. would have set for myself uh, it's really challenging and the nature of that challenge really hit home yeah didn't deter me but <laughs> so how long did that take to get from mm. to get to Broome to get to Broome yeah Oh, I haven't done that flight yet. Okay. Is that what you mean? Yeah. No, no, I, sorry, it's a bit ambiguous perhaps. No, so what I, I was just flying around locally here oh, right. in Newcastle, nice. but in really rough conditions. Yeah. So I went, well, if I need to, I need to know if I can actually fly that far and how long it will take. And mm. I decided that flying around Australia would be a much more cohesive uh, expedition to plan out because it's about the same distance mm-hmm. as what it is to the Arctic and back. And um, it's also, I'd be visiting all the shorebird sites all around the coastline of Australia, not just those between Melbourne and Broome. Mm-hmm. So everything just sort of felt like it fell into place mm-hmm. after that. So that's where I'm at at the moment. I'm here in Newcastle um, with Airborne. They're sponsoring me to train for this uh, circumnavigation of Australia. Mm-hmm. So. I get to work in the factory and learn all about the aircraft and build up my skills there in exchange for all the flying at mm. um, the flight training centre at Lake Macquarie Airport. Yeah, we, we should clarify too, the, <laughs> the the flight from Australia to the Arctic is not just a single hop. Yeah, no. there, there are stops along the way. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, no, people do ask that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so how far can one of these machines go in a single hit? Yep. So um, I've been looking at the XT912, which has a potential range of up to 700 kilometres, but obviously that depends on current wind conditions. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a headwind, you're going to be going slower. If you've got a tailwind, you could be going faster. I also can't see myself flying a leg that that far yeah. around Australia. Um, most will be between 50 and 150 nautical miles. Mm-hmm. Um, per leg of the flight because I want to you know maximize the number of stops that I have to, mm-hmm. um, uh, at each of the shorebird sites yeah and so on this you know, preparatory flight where we're going around Australia you're going to be stopping off mm-hmm. at different key shorebird sites along the way and yeah that's right raising awareness and getting involved in community initiatives and things pretty much so BirdLife Australia have come on board as a project partner mm-hmm. and I was volunteering for them for um, quite a while as a Shorebirds 2020 coordinator for Western Australia and that's uh, Shorebirds 2020 is the national shorebird monitoring program that BirdLife Australia run mm-hmm. and part of that involves um, a conservation action plan for migratory shorebirds that they have and we sat down and had a look at the objectives for that and where they overlap with my plans to fly around Australia. Mm-hmm. So at each of the major shorebird sites, we're going to stop and um, be running. Uh, I'll be doing presentations about my project itself, but also education uh, workshops about shorebirds, so teaching people how to ID shorebirds in the field and how to monitor them using the Bird Data app. And what I'm really passionate about too is uh, conservation psychology and understanding how uh, people relate to their environment and what motivates people to change their behavior towards sustainable actions for environment. Mm -hmm. So I'm very keen as well to run a series of community discussion forums with local community groups and just sit down and and nut out um, 
what what are the conservation issues in their own local environment and where would people like to see changes and what they may look like and mm. and and how we might be able to help facilitate uh, those changes mm-hmm. mm. and so where are we at on this journey do we have a launch date <laughs> <laughs> yes so um, a plan to take off on the flight in March next year mm-hmm. and prior to that I'm going to do a big recce trip yep. <laughs> and drive around Australia <laughs> so the plan is in August to pack the micro light up and put it on a trailer because mm-hmm. it's very portable aircraft mm-hmm. you can fold the wing up and just have it on top of your four wheel drive or whatever and the, the trike base on a trailer and you can set it up wherever you go so the plan is to have the trike on the trailer, drive around and visit all of the airstrips that I want to stop at and the the towns and organise all of the community events in those areas mm-hmm. on the way. You know, talk to local pilots, go mm-hmm. for a fly, do some fundraising, <laughs> all, of, all of that good stuff in, in preparation for, yeah. the, for the big big one. So I guess the big question is, how do your, how do your family and oh. friends feel about this sort of stuff? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's quite funny actually. I remember mum and dad completely surprised me with their reactions. I told dad, I said, dad, I need to tell you something. And he went, okay. And he's, I think he's probably imagining, you know, some, I'm telling him I'm pregnant or something. I don't know. <laughs> he's all dubious, like, uh-huh. And I told him, you know, I'm planning to fly a microlight to Siberia. And he went, oh, you can do that. My, <laughs> My cousin's a pilot. He flies 747s and off he goes on his own little story about his own family and, and their flying ex- exploits. So that was pretty funny. It just made me laugh. <laughs> and mum was like, oh, I'm not surprised you're doing this. You're always coming up with things like, <laughs> with things like this. And then you just go off what and do What else have you come up with? <laughs> yeah, she goes, oh, I just hope that you're safe, it's all. Like, okay, cool. Because there is, there is an element of danger. Yeah, totally. And doing this. Yeah. What's the biggest danger? Simply losing control of an aircraft, that sort of thing? Or? Yeah, I suppose the weather conditions are the, the main thing that you need to be mindful of. Mm. So the aircraft has limitations in terms of uh, the strength of the wind it can fly in um, and, and land in, in particular. So it's difficult to land in winds that are more than like a 15 knot crosswind or a 20 knot winds so you've got limitations there um also when you're flying over different landscapes sometimes there's areas where if you did have an engine failure for example there's, there's nowhere to put it down mm. so you, you need to be mindful of your flight planning as well and mm. try and maximize the amount of area you've got to put it on the ground so you want to have a nice long beach in front of you (laughs) you know you don't want to be over a forest or um you know mountainous range or a mountain range or things like that Mm. so there's all of those things to consider but um i think statistically speaking it's something like 80 odd percent of uh aircraft incidents are pilot error Mm. so it really comes down to making sure I'm in a good frame of mind that mm-hmm. I'm fit and well before I fly. I'm not making stupid decisions, that yeah. kind of stuff as well. So there's many things to consider as a pilot in that regard that can 
um, minimize the risks that are involved. And my guess is another common misconception about your project is that you're trying to recreate the uh, flyaway home oh, moment. Yes. <laughs> yeah, people go, oh, you're flying with the birds. Um, no. no they're, they're not following you to Siberia. No, they're not following me. I'm just visiting in, in Australia, I'll be just be visiting the sites that they're locally known at. So there's um, shorebirds show up pretty much on the entire coastline of Australia, but there's mm. sites in particular around our coastline where there's uh, larger numbers that tend mm. to be, um, uh, they're called staging sites where the birds come to feed and roost. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the biggest ones in Australia, or in the whole flyway actually, is um, 80 Mile Beach in Broome mm. um, and Roebuck Bay there as well. They're both Ramsar wetland protected sites. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about shorebirds up in the millions. Wow. So um, I remember I was on an Australasian way to studies group expedition a couple of years ago now. And um, we do that every February. We go up and bend and flag the birds there. And I remember we were sitting on the beach, you know, processing the birds. And we looked up and we just could not see the beach anymore because it was mm -hmm. entirely covered in oriental pratt and coals. It was just nuts. <laughs> there, was, oh, there was easily, you know, over half a million birds just as far as you could see. It was like a black carpet. It was just incredible. So, yeah, I forget what I was talking about now. <laughs> <laughs> talking about whether you're going to yeah. uh, fly baby ducks to Oh, Siberia. yes, that's right. We're talking about flyaway home. So, no, it's not flyaway home. Um, <laughs> So yeah, it's really about visiting those major shorebird sites mm. and, and running the workshops rather than flying with the birds. I think the birds um, would be a, a potential bird strike hazard, <laughs> which is not a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> but before all this, you were a, a bird nerd, really. Birds have oh, always yes. been your thing. <laughs> yes, yep. I've been a bird nerd for many years. <laughs> Did this happen before you started studying zoology or...? Yeah, uh, I can remember as a kid, um, mum taking us out in the garden. I remember we got that book, What Bird Is That? Mm -hmm. And being totally fascinated by it. And one one year in particular, um, we had a pair of gangane cockatoos come and visit our pencil oh, pines yeah. in our front garden. And, you know, as they do, they totally decimated all the pine cones. <laughs> and um, they kept coming back year after year, this pair of gangangs. And that really ignited my my love of birds mm. and I also had a teacher in primary school Mr Hogben and he used to <laughs> take us for walks around the school and just point out birds and tell us what they were mm. and, and I loved that as well so I actually learned a lot of my birds um, local birds through through Mr Hogben at primary school so mm. yeah I've always been a bit of a bird nerd but it wasn't until I started doing zoology at, at uni that I, I really um, embraced my <laughs> bird netting <laughs> and uh, yeah, let it let it fly, so to speak. <laughs> so would you call yourself a twitcher then? Oh yeah, okay, that's controversial. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't call myself a twitcher. I'd call myself a birder. Yeah. Yep. What, what makes a birder? Just Versus a twitcher? Yeah. Oh, I've got friends who are twitchers who will like drop everything just to go and see a rarity that showed up on the coast somewhere, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. And, and you go out looking for birds with them and they're on a mission to see all of the things on the list, you know what I mean? 
Whereas I'm like, yeah, let's go for a walk and just see what we see. And yeah. For me, it's really about being out in nature and um, enjoying the, um, you know, the sun and the breeze. Mm. And <laughs> um, enjoying the birds, being present, really. Mm. Um, so it's quite a different approach to it, I think, than yeah. teaching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not the, the stamp collecting approach. It's yeah. more of an appreciative yeah. approach. Yeah. Oh, I do keep a list. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a few lists. Birds, maybe secret, secret bird list. Have you got a a best spot you've made so far? Oh, that's a good one. A shorebird or just birds in general? Birds in general, thing. Oh, I think some of my favourites <coughs> would be seeing orange-bellied parrots at the right. treatment plant for the first time wow. a couple of years ago. That was awesome. Just mm. waited fifteen minutes uh, at the site. Where, where they're seen and watching them fly in and then they stayed in the trees and just take heaps of photos of them. That was pretty amazing. Mm. And um, oh, probably the biggest rarity would be um, Arctic leaf warbler at the Broom Bird Observatory as well, another yeah. couple of years ago. <laughs> it was like the easiest twitch ever <laughs> because it was just hanging around in the car park and <laughs> Nigel Jacket, who was the warden at the time, was just like, there it is. We pointed it out in the tree, and I was like, "Oh, cool." This <laughs> is um, very rare vagrant, just hanging out in the car park. And after your yeah. degree, you did a research project. Mm. You get black swans, is that right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. So that was with Raoul Mulder mm-hmm. at um, Melbourne University. Mm-hmm. Um, my master's degree, and that was on visual communication in black swans. Mm. Yeah. So I was, <laughs> that project came about because I had a dream. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'd been volunteering uh, on Black Swans with Raoul for a couple of years mm-hmm. and um, was looking into what I could potentially do for a third year project. And I had this dream that I was standing on the edge of Albert Park Lake, which is the study site, mm-hmm. with Raoul, and we were watching two swans do a triumph display to one another, which is what mated pairs do. Mm-hmm. And in my dream, I had the thought, oh, I wonder if that's got something to do with the white markings on their bill. And then I woke up and I went, yeah, that's great. <laughs> so I jump on Google and I'm looking at swan beaks to see if there's variation in the size and shape of these white bill markings. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of variation. So I, I pitched the idea to Raoul and he was like, yeah, I've wanted to look at that for ages. And that turned into my research project, mm-hmm. which then followed on into a, a master's. And through that research, um, I designed experiments. Uh, I measured so many photos <laughs> of the uh, measuring the area of that white patch on mm. their beak um, as a proportion of white to red. And what we ended up finding through um, a correlative and experimental um, uh, designs we, was that it's a dominant signal. Okay. Yeah. So, so the bigger a white spot a male. Has yeah yeah so the larger the proportion of white to red on the bill the more dominant this one mm-hmm. so we think it's a a way of polite fighting <laughs> so males will display their beaks to one another and size each other up before they decide to actually get into a fight okay and that tends to be that tends to be in line with what we observe mm. yeah between interactions of birds on the lake. No, this sort of ties in all your interests together, your uh, <laughs> knack for taking an interest in the visual signals birds are giving off. Yeah. 
brings us to your artistic side. <laughs> <laughs> Is you're yeah. you're an amazing artist. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and birds are a lot of your inspiration, right? Mhm. Very much so. So yeah, um, I do uh, realistic illustration as mm-hmm. well, so zoological illustration, and most of that is birds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I did a, a visual arts degree at Monash and worked as a tapestry weaver for seven and a half years in Melbourne before I actually went and did science mm-hmm. at uni. So just doing all the things, hey. <laughs> <laughs> What's a tapestry weaver? Just oh, okay. <laughs> Are you um, making rugs? Is this what we're talking about? Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> making assumptions there. Um, so tapestry, uh, it's um, a woven art form. So you have uh, a loom with vertical strands, cotton strands called a warp. Mm-hmm. And you have your weft, which goes in horizontally between those and you can create images you build up an image from the bottom Mm -hmm. up to the top um using thread basically Mm -hmm. so at the tapestry workshop we'd use wool and cotton mostly Mm -hmm. wool and we'd interpret uh, other artists work into large-scale tapestries by commission all right Mm -hmm. (laughs) so you weren't designing your own tapestries it was all commission-based yeah it was all commission-based for the artists themselves or occasionally yes for the artists themselves but most of the time it was a commission for um an organization or um another group would would be paying for that particular commission for Mm. the uh, the tapestry to go into one of their buildings it's very um close links between tapestry and architecture yeah. In in what way? That, oh, okay. That's not totally obvious to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have a, a long history of tapestries, you know, being in walls of castles mm-hmm. uh, for insulation properties and um, decoration as well. Mm. Um, and and that carries on there because they're so big as well. Mm-hmm. They're great to have in a, if you've got a large open space. A tapestry mm-hmm. can fill up quite quite a large area. And, you know, they're tactile, they create warmth in a room. So if you've got, um, you know, a cold stone wall or something like that, tapestry really brings brings warmth to that, that space with its tactility and mm. stuff like that. So a lot of architects are very interested in um, textiles and in interior design in that way. Yeah. So what yeah. triggered the decision to go from art to science? <laughs> Okay, I actually um, injured my shoulder weaving. <laughs> oh, no. Some intense weaving. Yeah. Well, yeah, working full time, I got a repetitive strain injury in my shoulder. Wow. And I found it hard to recover. And I went, okay, this isn't going to be a, a long term career for me. Mm-hmm. And the only other thing I could think of that I really loved doing was working with animals. And I can remember when I was seven asking my sister uh, what somebody who studied animals was and she told me it's a zoologist <laughs> and I was like well that's what I'm going to be then <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I went oh well might as well become a zoologist yep so you thought you'd do something less intense than tapestry and <laughs> become a pilot yeah, yeah that's right <laughs> yeah yeah I've always you know I've always felt that if you really want to do something and you love it just go for it mm. there's nothing holding you back as you did mention that the planes you're going to fly are, what's the word for it, mechanical planes are physically driven by you. 
actually oh, moving the wings shift? around. Yeah. Weight shift, you're flying the wing with the control bar. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, so it's different to a, um, a fixed wing aircraft that has the, the stick with control rods and such. So mm-hmm. with a fixed wing aircraft, you can control all three axes. So you have your pitch, which is the nose going up and down. Mm-hmm. And you have your roll, which is the wings banking left and right. And then you have yaw, which is controlled by the, the rudder. So moving the aircraft side to side, mm-hmm. basically like a, like a fish, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas in the microlight, you control pitch and roll, but the, there's nothing to control your yaw. Mm. It doesn't really yaw very much anyway, because it's got a single attachment from the mast to the wing. So it's quite different. Yeah, you're actually in direct contact with control of the wing. So I guess you feel the air and what the air is doing a lot more mm. in a weight shift aircraft compared to fixed wing. Yeah. Mm. I have flown with fixed wing. I've been learning to fly a Foxbat as well mm-hmm. because when it was too windy to fly the microlight, I still had to get my flying fix. So I'd <laughs> go off in the Foxbat, but I haven't gone solo in the Foxbat yet. Yeah. So, so I guess the imagery is a bit like it, it's a hang glider type of control system, right? It's the hang glider. You're wing. moving yep. the entire wing mm-hmm. itself. Yep. To adjust it. Is that, that's going to be physically strenuous. Yeah, if the air's rough, it is. Yeah. Yep. And um, you need to, what well, <laughs> Gordon said, make it go where you want it to go. You can't, <laughs> you know, if the wind pitches the nose up or something, you know, you have to pull it back down again. Or, you know, if, if you're getting rolled over to the side or whatever, you need to pull it back in. So there's a lot of bracing the arms especially when you're coming into land because you, you need to keep the aircraft straight and going down the runway so mm-hmm. you can't be letting it go all over the shop. Yeah. <laughs> and even when you did either this very first flight, was there ever a touch of fear? Is there a trepidation? Yeah, I get asked that a lot. I, um, I've never felt scared so much in the aircraft. Um, Sure, when I first started going up in turbulence, it was confronting and I was a little bit fearful, but I don't know, I kind of got in this focused space. Mm. (laughs) Um, I get in this focused space where I go, nothing's actually, nothing bad's actually happening. You, You find your mind, you're always constantly confronted with your, your own mind and and what's going on in there when you're up in the air, I find. So I, f- I find that I go, nothing bad's actually happening, it's just a bump, and it's only if I let my imagination run away with me and start imagining falling out of the sky or something like that mm. that, <laughs> that it gets out of control. Yeah. So it's just a matter of sitting in it, basically, and letting it pass. So it's... I'm still okay, I'm still okay now, and I'm still okay now, and I'm still okay now, everything's still okay, mm-hmm. it's fine. So that's really where I, where I go. Um, and I remember the second time I went up solo at, at White Gum Farm where I was training with Gordon, um, I had this moment where um, Gordon had said to me, you know, just fly to Green Hill Silo and back, and if you experience any bumps on the way, just turn around and come back. 
Well, I get halfway and of course I start experiencing bumps <laughs> and <laughs> these two voices popped up in my head and one went, just keep going, you'll be fine, like it's no worries, you're almost at Green Hills, don't worry about it. And the other one went, no, you don't have enough experience, you need to turn around and go back. So I turned around and went back and I was really glad that I did because I found it hard to get the aircraft back on the ground because mm. the wind upstairs had started working its way down to ground level already. And I ended up going around twice before <laughs> I actually put the aircraft on the ground. So we're pretty much on uh, yeah, what, a, a year from now, mm -hmm. you'll be taking flight. Yeah. And this, the project itself is called Wing Threads. What's the, what's the significance of the name? Yeah, so it's Wing Threads Flight to the Tundra. Mm -hmm. And um, I chose the name Wing Threads because um, it refers to my three main passions in life mm. so I really feel that this project ties together all of those things it's, it's very neat and satisfying um, <laughs> <laughs> so it references my um, artistic background and having worked as a tapestry weaver working with thread mm -hmm. um, it's also my passion for flying so we've got the wing mm -hmm. and the microlite wing is made of fabric and is stitched with thread Mm. And then you have the shorebird reference as well. Obviously shorebirds flying, wings, but um, I also see their migration as being like a thread that mm. links everybody living in the flyway together with one another. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's where the name Wing Threads came from. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want to find out more about it and to even throw a bit of support Yes. Anyway, you have a website? I do have a website. It's just wingthreads.com. Mm -hmm. And you can go online to the website to donate. Mm -hmm. And you can also sign up to the email updates on mm -hmm. there too. And I've also got a Facebook page. It's just wingthreads. Uh, and Twitter is wing underscore threads for the handle. And if people wanted to check out your art as well, you oh. have <laughs> online presence. I do, I do have a website. It's millieformby.com. Mm -hmm. And you can buy all sorts of prints on Redbubble and yeah, originals a, and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, that's right. There's a link to Redbubble that um, you can get my artwork printed on cushions or iPhone <laughs> cases or whatever you please. I have some of your uh, fridge magnets. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> They're great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, there'll be a shop on the Wing Threads website eventually too. So you'll be able to get them again. More magnets. Yeah, and you're going to be okay. sharing this whole journey along the way, right? Yeah. You're going to be filming bits and... Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't even mention that, did I? <laughs> oh, it just gets bigger and bigger, hey. Um, so I've been working with uh, a friend of mine, Chris McCormack. Mm -hmm. uh, who started an NGO called Wild Melbourne and that's just launched to become a national brand called Remember the Wild and um, their uh, main focus is on people in, in conservation, you know, uh, connecting people with environment and they, they do a lot of uh, natural history filmmaking as well. So Chris will be uh, creating a series of short films with mm -hmm. me um, as we travel around Australia about local heroes working in shorebird conservation and telling stories about how people um, make their own connections with their local patch and the kind of work that people are doing in conservation, telling those positive, amazing stories of mm. 
you know, local heroes that nobody ever hears about. Mm. Um, I've met so many incredible people travelling around as Shawbirds 2020 coordinator, inspiring people, you know, who are so dedicated to their own little patch of of wilderness and preserving that. Um, and, and I think we need to hear more of that. Yeah, yeah. Well... We're really looking forward to chatting again in about a year's time. Yeah, yeah <laughs> getting updates along the way. Yeah. <laughs> if you're well, wherever I am, and at that time, if your plane's landing somewhere near me, yeah, yeah. <laughs> run out and we can get a, a trip update. Oh, that would be cool. Maybe yeah. we can take you for a fly, James. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Yeah, <laughs> as long as I don't have to do anything, I just have to sit there and enjoy you can the. Sit way. in the back seat and just go, wow. <laughs> Okay. I can do that easily. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, well thanks so much for sitting and having a chat. I should probably let you go get get back on the tools. Oh yeah, I'm not on the tools today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Right, thanks thank so much, Billy. No worries. <laughs> and thank you guys for listening. Check us out at ncgscience.com or at ncgscience on social media. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.